Welcome to the Center Ranch Church Weekly Podcast. We believe that faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Thanks so much for checking out the podcast. Here's this week's message. Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Thank you so much for being here. Glad that you are here today. Today's going to be a great day. There's an awesome testimony about one of the things that happens in, in connect groups, just the relationships that form, the sense of community, the, the family that really, that really develops. You know, the church is the family of God, right? We are, we are God's family to the point where really it's not just an, an analogy that we're like a family. Actually, the family that you live with in your home, that is the analogy pointing to the reality of the family of God, that God is our father that once we accept Jesus, we are, are adopted into his family, given the spirit of, of adoption. And in a family, there should be fellowship. There should be people that are, are close to one another. And so Connect Groups is an opportunity for us to have that. And the larger we grow as a church, and we're going to continue to grow larger, the more and more important that those families within the family, the more important they become, because we want everyone to be known, loved, and cared for. That, that is our heart behind connect groups. And really, it's a biblical principle that when you have a large group of people, you can divide them into smaller groups to be able to care for them more effectively. You see it in the life of Moses when he's leading the Israelites through the wilderness, and he's trying to care for them all. And his father-in-law, Jethro, says, man, you are, you're doing a pretty crummy job here. What you ought to do is break them up into smaller groups and put people over them, and then they're going to get the care that they need. Jesus did something similar when he fed the multitudes with the fish and loaves. Before he, before he blessed them and started giving them the fish and loaves out, he, he told his disciples, okay, break the people up, have them sit down in smaller groups. Why? So that they could be cared for more, more effectively. So that, that's the heart. That's what we're trying to do. As well, we want you known, loved, and cared for, but it becomes very difficult if people won't participate in our in our efforts. So we're getting ready to launch a new season of Connect Groups. You heard about in the announcement video over these next couple of weeks. Go to the the church website, centerbranch.org, in the lobby. The next couple of weeks, we want to get you signed up to be a part of a family within within the family. Amen. Amen. Well, today is day twenty one of our twenty one days of fasting. Fasting and prayer. Uh, I really appreciate everybody that's been a part of it, that you have participated. We've got a, a lot of people that have been a part of it all the way through. Exciting, exciting to see that. Uh, I joked last service that we're, we're breaking this fast just in time because it's difficult to see Pastor Jonathan behind the microphone stand because he's become so, become so thin. You've got to get it the right angle just to be able to, to see him. But you know, when we, when we end the fast every year, I like to encourage people, don't let this be the last time that you fast in 2023. There's a time that we do it corporately, and that's good, but there should also be times where you fast in your own personal devotional life. It's a, it's a discipline that's supposed to be a regular part of the life of a follower of Jesus. And we've looked at a lot of different examples, different scriptures uh, to, to show that over the last few weeks, I would encourage you just to go ahead and plan as we're ending this fast. When are you going to fast the next time? Uh, how will you approach that this year? Will you pick a day of the week? Will you say, hey, the first three days of every month? 
come up with some kind of plan of how you'll engage because I hope you're seeing, and we're just scratching the surface of the benefits of fasting, how rich everything that God gives us, every instruction is for our benefit. It doesn't help God to see us skip meals. It helps you. It helps, it helps me. And we've been talking about when you fast using what Jesus said in Matthew chapter six is like a launching point for this series. When you fast, when Jesus taught on, on fasting and when you give, when you pray, when you fast. And I've heard people explain away that instruction because Jesus didn't technically say you have to fast. He said, when you fast. I don't know if you've, maybe you've made that argument. Maybe you've heard other people say, well, Technically, he didn't say we had to. When people think like that and talk like that, it just shows a lack of understanding of the position that Jesus is speaking from, that Jesus was establishing his kingdom. Jesus didn't come as just some guy in sandals shuffling around in the dirt. He, he came as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And before people recognized them as that, he was already operating as that. And so when, when a king speaks, when a master speaks, you know, if you are a servant and you're, you're serving a king and you come in one day and he says, hey, when you go to the store today, here's a few things I want you to pick up for me. You wouldn't walk out of there. If you're a good servant and you're really submissive and want to honor the king, honor your master, you wouldn't walk out of there and be like, I'm not going to the store today. You would understand when he says, hey, when you go to the store today, that, that means I'm going to the store today, right? So when we understand Jesus, he's not just some guy, he's the king of kings. So when he says, when you fast, a good servant says, looks like I'm fasting. When you give, Looks like I better plan on doing some giving, right? That, that's understanding the position and the honor that we give that we give to Jesus. And we want to be people that are easy for Jesus to work with, easy for him to lead. If you have ever been in a position of authority, which I'm, I'm sure you have, either as a parent, in the work environment, a babysitter, whatever that opportunity was, and you try to use your authority and give instruction to someone, and you're doing it for their benefit, and they're trying to find technicalities to not follow through. It's frustrating, right? You tell your kids to, to do something. Well, technically, you didn't say, all right, you, you know what I was, you, you understood the instruction I was trying to give. We're not trying to nitpick and, and find loopholes. We're trying to submit and honor. We want it to be, we're so sensitive to the Lord's leading. He almost has to be careful. because even, even glances in a direction. We're, we're running that way. He says, when you fast, that, that, mean, that means I'm going to be doing some fasting, right? So we've been talking about some of the benefits of taking time to devote yourself to fasting and prayer. The first week of this series, Pastor Josiah did a great job talking about how it energizes us in our, in our spirit man, that we're, we're to be never, never lacking in zeal. And so it helps us to get charged up spiritually. Then we talked about how it helps us setting our priorities and why this is such a great time of the year because people are already sort of thinking evaluation and, and making plans for the year. So what a great time to get our hearts tender and sensitive and invite the Lord to, to speak to us as we kind of evaluate, Lord, what things do I need to focus on this year? What, what kind of things do I need to put my energy and my focus behind? When we talked about that, we, we looked at the story of Elijah when he went head to head with the prophets of Baal and the story where they called down fire and the, the true God's going to answer. And he issued a, 
a point of decision to the Israelites and said, if Baal's God, serve him. But if he's not, if the Lord is God, then serve him. And we talked about different times where Moses and Joshua and other great men of God called God's people to a, a decision. And so it's a good time to make a decision. If the Lord really is God, if all of this stuff is real, if Christianity really is the only way, if serving Jesus really is what the Bible claims that it is, then there's no sense in going about this half-hearted, on the fence, kind of in in and out. If God is, if the Lord is God, then we should serve him with all of our heart. Why pretend to be fully devoted to the Lord? It's just go ahead and be fully devoted to the Lord. Why come into church and try to wrinkle your brow and act like, man, I love God with all my heart? Just go ahead and really love God with all, with all of your heart. What would it look like if we as a church family really allowed God to set our hearts on fire for the kingdom of God, for souls? What, what would it look like this year? We would shake the community. We'd see such growth. We'd see so many turnarounds in people's lives. That's what he wants to do in you and through you. That's why the challenge that, that week when we talked was this year, I'm going to make unusual spiritual progress. God, I'm pushing to stress. I'm all in on the things of God. And we said the price for all of God is all of you. That's what he's looking for. Not 75%, not like, I mean, I'm like 90% into being a Christian. Well, you might as well be 0% because God is looking for all of you. And that's exactly what he's going to get this year. Amen. Unusual spiritual progress is what we're going to see as individuals and as a church family. Then last week, if you were here, we looked at Isaiah chapter 58. And in Isaiah 58, it talks about people who had been fasting, but they weren't going about it the way that God wanted them to go about it. And, he, and so he says, you know, you guys fast, but there's nothing, there's really no results. The only results is you're proud of yourself. It's just religious rigmarole and hoops that you're jumping through to pat yourselves on the back. And then he begins to describe the kind of fasting that he wants to see. He says, this is the kind of fast that I've chosen, that the people who are oppressed wouldn't be oppressed anymore. People that are burdened, no longer burdened. People who were imprisoned, no longer imprisoned. People bound by chains, that's not the case anymore. People who are homeless, they're not homeless anymore. These examples of dramatic turnaround, complete change of story, that's why we're engaging with fasting. That coming out of it, it's not just a little religious tweak to our lives. It's complete change of level, powerful move of God in us and through us, and that's what we've got to believe for. If you're believing, if you're believing for certain some little minor, I feel a little bit more spiritual, then that's exactly what you'll come out of it. We said, what Jesus said, according to your faith, be it unto you. So last week we said, let's allow the Holy Spirit to stretch our vision, to stretch our imagination, to stretch our faith. What is it that you are believing for this year? Because you are way too important to not aspire to the things that God has called you to. What God has put on the inside of you, it's too special for you not to do whatever it takes to develop it and see it bring forth fruit. The role that you play in the body of Christ, it's too impactful. It's too critical for you not to be fully engaged in the body of Christ and doing what God has designed you to do. So whatever we've got to do to shed weight, to move forward, you are too important to not go all in on the things of God. And the enemy would love to get you operating at 50%. We looked at the story of Lot when the angels came and said, mountaintops, get to the mountains. And he said, do I have to? Can I, can I just go to this little town instead? The mountains sound really tough. Um, and he negotiated, and okay, 
that's what you want to do. And it said, therefore, the name of the town was called Zoar, and it means place of little significance. That's, that's what happens in people's lives all the time, that they're afraid to really dream. They're afraid to really go after the thing that God's put in, in their heart, but not this year. We're going to say, God, I'm all in. Father, you do whatever you want in me. I'm going to believe big, dream big. We talked about the wells that Isaac went to, that the Philistines had, had stopped up with, with dirt and used that as a comparison of the fountain, the, the well of, of everlasting life and the flow of the Holy Spirit that God has put in those of us who believe and how sometimes our natural mind, our flesh can clog up those wells, but we're digging those wells open again. Amen. We're allowing the Spirit of God to flow the way that he wants to flow in us and through us in our lives and our private time as a, as a church body, unstopping those wells. And then it said he called those wells the names that the Father had called them, that his Father had called them. We talked about speaking over our lives, not how you feel, not how you look, not your own evaluation. What does the Father say about you? He says you're anointed. He says you're victorious, that you're an overcomer, that you're more than a conqueror. That's, that's what God has to say about you, that whatever you do, it prospers. So we've, we've got to believe in line with that, amen? Believe big. Man, God wants to use you in such amazing ways this year, but according to your faith, be it unto you. So this, this isn't the last, last time we fast. We're, we're going to break the fast. A lot of us break it this evening, but, but it won't be long before we're, we're fasting again. And so many things that we have instruction from the Word of God to participate in, it's not exciting to the natural mind. It's not exciting to your flesh because sacrifice is a principle in the kingdom. In fact, you could say sacrifice is the principle. The kingdom is founded on sacrifice, that Jesus was the sacrifice, laid down his life for us. And so we need to be people of sacrifice if we're going to operate in the kingdom. And sacrifice is just giving up something you value for something else that you value more giving up something you value because there's something else that you value more. And when we're talking about fasting, if you know me, you, you know, this isn't true. I'm not, I'm not talking about fasting because I'm like some anorexic guy. I, I, I like eating probably more than anyone that, that I know. It's, so I'm willing to set it aside and make that sacrifice. Why? Because there's something I value even more. As much as I enjoy eating, I, I love the presence of God. I want to see a move of God. I want to draw near to God way more, way more than I, I, I love Whatever it is, I'll be eating in a few short hours. Amen. Amen. You know, so when we take time to fast, we're, we're sowing to the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 6, it says that there are some that sow to the flesh and from the flesh reap destruction, corruption. So you, you've got to be careful how you live your life, just look, looking for pleasure, allowing the flesh. If you sow to the flesh, the harvest is destruction. But there's others that sow to the Spirit, and from the Spirit, they reap life. That's, that's what we're going to be reaping, that we reap life. Amen? Well, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll, we'll continue the series this morning. Father, I love you. Let's go ahead and tell them that you love them. Father, I love you. God, you're so good. Just set your heart on the Lord. Just invite him. Just invite him in your own words. Come and speak to me. Come and speak to me. God, that we could encounter your presence in a special way. Lord, you're, you're who we're after. You're all that we need. Holy Spirit, come and speak to us. You're our teacher. You're our instructor. We look to you. We look to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you have your Bible, you can turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 
How many know that God is a good God, a faithful God, a patient God, a loving God, a gracious God, right? And he, he is all of those things. He's, he's gracious. He's for us, not against us. But sometimes when we are very aware of that, and we should be, a mistake we can make is to not be aware that there's other aspects of God as well. That because he's gracious, it doesn't mean that anything goes. And because some of us can say he's for me, not against me, that's not the case for everyone. Because the Bible talks about a group of people that God is not for. Actually, he is against them. That there is a category of people that God says, I oppose those people. I resist them. Actually, God says that he detests. He detests them. That's strong language. I never want that to be a word that God uses when he describes the way that he feels about me. Luke, I detest that guy. That, that would be a major problem for God to feel that way. But there's some people, according to the word of God, that God detests. So I, I want to take a few minutes this morning and talk about steps we can take to ensure that we'll never We'll never fit into a category of people that God opposes, that he'll never resist us. We certainly don't want him to ever detest us. So 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, it says this, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear them. From heaven, and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Man, a beautiful passage of scripture, one that's familiar to a, a lot of us, and it's another example of God causing amazing turnaround in people's lives. That God is hearing from heaven, He's responding, He's forgiving people's wickedness, He's bringing healing to their land. And if we read this verse in context, if we backed up just a couple of verses, it's talking about why that land would need healing, why people might need to apply this instruction. He said there might be times where, where God sends pestilence, where God sends locusts, where the land is devoured, where drought comes. Now for agricultural people, any of those things, let alone all of them, would be complete devastation. The, the land is devoured. The rain isn't falling. Pestilence comes. That's going to affect every area of a farmer's life, of an agricultural person's life. It's going to affect their health. It's going to affect their career. It's going to affect what they eat. It's going to affect family dynamics. It's going to affect where they have to go to obtain food and water. It, it's, it's going to have a detrimental effect in every single area. And when it describes those things, that you might need this instruction for, it says that God is the one that sent them, that, that God would send pestilence, God would send locusts to devour the land, that God would send drought. You know, God doesn't just send those things willy-nilly. It's, it's understood in this scripture that if, if there's a time where God is sending those things on people, it's judgment that these people have gotten, they've gotten themselves into just an absolute mess, that they've fallen into wickedness and rebellion and they refuse to honor the Lord and they're serving false gods and doing all kinds of, of crazy things. And that's why those things would happen. And so he's giving instruction on how to get out of that mess. You know, when you are in a mess spiritually, it doesn't just affect you spiritually. It affects every area of your life. That, that's the nature of the spiritual realm and why one of the reasons why it is so 
so incredibly important. When people are a mess spiritually, it's only a matter of time until they're a mess in every area of their life, that their relationships fall apart, their health falls apart, their finances fall, fall apart, because the spiritual part of your life really dictates every other area of your life. And so these people have allowed themselves to become a mess spiritually. And as a result, everything's a mess. The, the wheels have coming off every area of their lives. Now, we'll come back to that, but just as a side note, the opposite is true as well. It's not just in the negative. When you do well spiritually, you can expect to see a ripple effect through your life. It, it affects everything. So when we talk about making unusual spiritual progress this year, you can understand that as we focus on that, we're gonna expect to see progress in every area of our, our lives. That it's gonna be a ripple effect. And we don't have to pursue money and promotion and, and people's admiration or other things that people set their hearts on. We're setting our hearts on the Lord and on his kingdom and pressing in like never before. And as a result, all of that other promotion, all of that other advancement, man, it's just gonna come along along in the mix. That's why Paul could say to Timothy, give yourself to these things entirely. Throw yourself into these things completely so that your progress would what? Be evident to all. If it was just spiritual, he was talking about spiritual progress, but Paul understood that when you make spiritual progress, it's just a matter of time until people could see evidence everywhere in your life. Man, you, you're, you're moving ahead. Man, you're coming up higher. Man, something's changed about you. If it was just spiritual, you can't look at somebody and with a natural eye, Say, I think you're increasing. Man, you're just becoming more like the Lord. You can't see that. He's talking about evidence that would just start to be a ripple effect. Amen? That's what we're going to experience. But he's talking about people on the other end of the spectrum. And so he's giving them advice. He's giving them instruction if you find yourself in this kind of predicament. And the first part of the instruction is important. The first piece of the instruction really really can be the most crucial instruction. It's, it's all important. It's all important. But the first part is very, very crucial. I've got a weird thing with, with knots, like tangles. Uh, I, I hate them and they frustrate me, but I, some kind of weird indulgence. Uh, I love untangling things. So sometimes my wife or my daughter will, will say, hey, you know, I've got a piece of jewelry. i got a necklace that's kind of gotten tangled up somehow. Would you mind seeing if you can untangle it? Sure. And then they'll like hold out what's supposed to be a necklace, but it's just like a, a nugget. It's just like, that's a necklace? And so, you, you know, it's like, Ugh. but there's a, I don't know if you're like me, it's just like a little bit of enjoyment somehow of figuring out, I know, if a jewelry box was able to create this problem, surely I can solve it, right? I'm not gonna be outsmarted by a drawer somewhere. I, I, can, I can fix this. Or, or uh, you know, taking my kids fishing. If you ever taken four daughters and a wife fishing, you know what you're gonna do most of the time. You're just untangling fishing line. That, that's that's all, all that it is. You do it, next. And it's just taking turns untangling it. And so I've had, you know, nests of fishing line. Fishing line, it's like they made it. How can we create a string that will tangle like nothing else? But I, I find a weird satisfaction, as frustrating as it is, I know I can untangle this. And if you're, if you're like me or if you've ever, you know, poured yourself into untying knots like that, you can't just, you can't just start, uh, you know, pulling on any, any loop right? That you've, got, you've got to really examine it and find out where, what's the core of this problem. If you can, okay, all right, here's where I need to start, right? If I can just get this loosened up, if I can just get this string just to budge a little bit, and then it starts to all unfold, and you might tug on this loop later, 
but not until you get the other, other one loosened up right? That, that's, that's the way it can be when we're given instructions to deal with not just with uh, fishing line messes, but messes in our lives of a spiritual nature. So as another example, if somebody came to my office and they, they wanted to, to meet with me and they, their life has is, is gone off the rails and so they're going to pour out their heart and they look for insight and I sit and I listen to them begin to, to tell me what's going on. Man, I've, I've got myself into a mess. Uh, I'm an alcoholic. Um, I'm addicted to just about every drug. I'm, you know, I'm strung out on all this stuff. And financially, man, I'm, I'm out of a job. I'm out of money. I'm in debt up over my head. I've lost my house. I've lost my car. I owe people money that you, you just don't want to owe these people money. My relationships are all destroyed. My, my wife left me. My parents don't want anything to do with me. My kids have disowned me. My, my health is falling apart. As they are just pouring out their heart and I listen to talk about what an absolute mess that they're in, and then they finally, they finally finish. When I begin to give them the instruction that they're looking for, it would be a mistake if I said, well, maybe uh, if you considered clipping coupons and um, you know, you've mentioned financial problems, maybe that could help alleviate some of the stress or just start watching for sales. Sometimes the grocery store would put stuff on special. Um, if, if I offer that advice, I mean, maybe eventually that'll be helpful. But there's got to be something deeper, a more significant step. If they're pouring out their heart of the mess and I say, well, you know, you smell like cigarettes. Have you considered nicotine patches uh, or maybe switch into a smokeless tobacco form or something? You know, you know th those are things that maybe, maybe down the road could be helpful. But the first instruction is going to be one of the most crucial, if not the most crucial instruction. So in that scenario, someone that knows what they're doing would say, OK, first of all, before, you got lots of problems for Talk to me about your relationship with the Lord, right? Because until we solve that, the, the you know, saving a 75 cents at Kroger or whatever really, really isn't going to help meet the, the root of the need, the thing that was wrong that set this, this whole domino sequence tumbling down. And so that's what's happening in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, that everything, everything that God is saying obviously is true and right and they need to do it. But he's not just spitting out random instructions. He's giving an order and a sequence. And the first one is foundational for the rest of them. And it, before, he gets, before he gets to prayer, before he gets to seeking God's face, before he gets to turning from wicked ways, think all of those things are very significant things to do, to, to stop engaging in wickedness, to pray. Before any of those things, what's the first instruction? Humble yourself. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. Why? Because that, that was the root of every problem that they'd gotten themselves into. The root of it was pride. And until they dealt with the root of pride, turning from your wicked ways was going to be a temporal fix. It's just a matter of time. If you remain proud, you know better than the Lord. If you don't deal with that, you're, you're going to be doing your own thing in just a short matter uh, of time. You can pray, tell God you're sorry. But if that root remains, the problem still remains. So humbling themselves was the most important thing that they could do so that the other things could all fall into place. Pride is such a dangerous, dangerous sin to allow in our lives. It is enormously destructive. And I'll read a few verses just to show how over and over again, God's word warns us about the danger of pride. And even when we examine sins, there are some sins that people would be very ashamed to have anyone know that they participate in. Sexual sins and those kinds of things carry with them all kinds of shame. But most people would rather be considered proud than perverted. 
Because pride, pride is so dangerous, it's even blind to how bad it is. Pride even feels good about itself as a sin. But listen to what the Bible has to say. I'll just read a couple of passages. First Samuel chapter 15. You don't have to turn to these. Verse 23, it says, For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. You know, most believers today would say, there's no way I'm bowing down to some little idol. You know, that's a sin I don't have to worry about. Well, arrogance, pride, God puts it on the same level because instead of bowing down to a little statue and uh, jumping through whatever they, they make you do to worship a statue, you actually become the false god yourself, that you know better, whatever pleases you, that you become the false god, and that is a very dangerous place to be. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5 says, The Lord detests the proud. They will surely be punished. He detests them. There is a category of people that God detests. And it doesn't say that about, you know, I'm not speaking in favor of other sins, but this one is especially putrid to the Lord. I don't know of a passage that says God detests a drunkard. God detests someone who's sexually immoral. And again, I'm not trying to promote those things, but I'm trying to show how, how deeply and significantly dangerous the sin of pride is. In Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 17. Now this verse is talking about, uh, on one level, the king of Tyre and God's judgment against them and an examination of this king. But a second understanding of it is it's actually talking about Lucifer and how Lucifer went from being a high-ranking angelic being to becoming the devil, getting kicked out of heaven being thrown into a lake of fire, it says this, your heart was filled with pride. What was going on in the heart of Lucifer? You know, the, the devil wasn't always the devil. Something, something happened on the inside of him where he was kicked out of God's presence and eventually, the Bible says, he'll be thrown into a bottomless pit, that he was in a high place and not only is he in a low place now, he's going to be eternally sinking lower and lower and lower. Something started a trajectory on his existence that only moves one direction, down, down, down. What was it? Pride is what, what triggered this, this whole sequence that's caused him to end up where he is now and where he will be for all eternity, that you could really trace every sin. Think of all the wickedness that comes in the world, that the, the, what enemy, the enemy does in people's lives and people's bodies and, and people's marriages and some of the wicked things that happen. All of it comes back. The root of it all is pride. Proverbs 16 verse 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. You can see that in the life of Lucifer becoming the, the devil, and compare that to what happens when somebody humbles themselves. If you put the life of Lucifer next to the life of Jesus, what, what a contrast. That one was in a high place and became proud, and now he will forever be going lower and lower. Jesus chose, in Philippians chapter 2, it says that he chose to humble himself like a servant. He left heaven and came to earth and took the form of a servant, willing to die even a criminal's death on a cross. What was the result of him being willing to humble himself like that? The Bible says because of that, God gave him a name that's above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus will be exalted forever and ever and ever. Those of us that know him, in 10 million years, we'll still be praising Jesus, we'll be exalting him forever and ever. He's being exalted and exalted. Why? Because 
humility causes someone to be exalted, whereas pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That if I allow pride in my life, if you allow pride to linger in your life, the result is that you are moving the opposite direction that God wants you to move. Because there's an upward call on your life. There is, there's a call to a high place. But if you allow pride, it's like an anchor that pulls you away from God and everything that he has for you. Turn your Bible to James chapter 4. You know, we could really go on and on about the dangers of pride. In the Garden of Eden, their original sin, how did that come about? God knows if you eat the fruit of this tree, you'll actually become like him, knowing good from evil. I know God said this, but does he really know what's best for you? Don't you? Don't you know what's, what's best for you? That it was pride that caused Adam and Eve to disobey God in the first place. All of our sin can be traced back eventually eventually to pride. It's about you. It's about self. It's about what, what, I, what I want. That's why the Bible over and over and over again through the New Testament talks about the need for you to die to yourself. Paul said, I die daily. Another place he said, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Jesus said, if any man wants to come after me, what's the number one thing you've got to do? You've got to deny yourself. You've got to empty you of you. You've got to become humble and get rid of pride. James chapter 4. Verse six, it says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Man, an amazing verse, such incredible insight into the way that God thinks and the way that he views people. He resists the proud, he opposes them, but he gives grace to the humble. Who's the most arrogant person you know? Who's the most prideful, prideful person you know? Don't nudge people. Don't look at them. You say that, and then you look at a whole room of people staring at you. Start to ask yourself some questions. So if you're, if you're like me, when you see someone who's very arrogant, it's usually not a person that you're drawn to, Right? I was recently around someone. I just watched this person. I thought, man, he is so arrogant. He's so proud, and it irritated me. And I thought, man, I just watching him. I don't, I don't like this guy. I just don't like him. And then I, I felt bad about that, not liking him. But then I read this verse, <laughs> and now I feel like maybe I'm on the same page with the Lord. That we're, I feel, I feel better about disliking this person. But it says that God, he resists, he opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Verse seven, again, it says, therefore, giving us instruction as a result of that, therefore submit to God. So submission's important. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, when it says resist the devil, what kind of attitude, what kind of response, interaction should you and I have with the devil? When he's trying to mess with you, mess with your family, when he's trying to put stuff in your head, when he's trying to whisper in your ear, when he's trying to pull you off in decision-making, what, what is the appropriate response? Not a conversation, not, oh, do you really think so? You really think I should do that, right? We're not supposed to mess around. We're supposed to Absolutely not, right? We deny him. I refuse to, enemy, I refuse to listen to you. You are under my feet. I have nothing to do with you. You have no room to operate in my life. Complete rejection, right? That's what it's describing. Submit to God and resist 
the devil. Now, that's the same language he used the verse before to describe the way that God treats the proud. God resists the proud. And then he gives us instruction to resist the devil. So your attitude towards the devil, the way that it should be, is actually the same way God approaches proud people. So how effective do you think the prayer life is of a person who allows pride in their life? If God's saying, absolutely not, no way. No, I'm not gonna listen to you, right? That, that's what we're supposed, that's what resisting looks like, we just said with the enemy. No, absolutely not, I'm not you, have, you have no place, I'm, I'm not going to listen to you. So this is so important for us to humble ourselves like this, like this passage said. Pride, pride is dangerous, again, because it's all about self. And the opposite of pride is humility. Look at verse 10. Jump down to verse 10 in James chapter 4. It says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. If I humble myself, God will lift me up. So God does the lifting, but who does the humbling? God will lift you up. Who, who does the humbling? Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Father, I just pray that you would humble me. What are you talking about? I told you to do that. Right? We don't ask God to do the very thing that he just told, told us to do. Oh, the Bible says I'm supposed to tithe. God, would you please tithe? That's what I told you to do. You can't just turn it around. He says, he says he'll lift us. He'll take responsibility for that. But there's a responsibility on you. There's a responsibility on me when it comes to humbling I, I have a role to play. Flip a few pages over to 1 Peter chapter 5. Very, very similar passage. Starting in verse 5, it says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you. And James said he'll lift you up, that he may exalt you in due time. Now, I want to get to that instruction that he gives. But he also mentions submission. Submit to one another. Submit to elders. That's a, a, an office, a position in the body of Christ. And we live in a, a culture, we live in a time where submission is not a word that people like to talk about. We live in a culture that's, no, if I want it, it's my way. I want it when I want it. I want it how I want it. It's a very proud, arrogant culture that we live in. And some of that has even crept into the church that this idea of submission is a very distasteful, kind of a yucky topic to, to, to preach on, to hear about, to discuss. Even when you talk about marriages and where it says wives are supposed to submit to their husbands, we try to change that and tweak it and make it a little more, more palatable because this idea of submission has become such a negative thing. But he's tying that in with the need for humility. Submission goes hand, hand in hand with it. So a refusal to submit is actually an evidence of pride. If, if humility submits, then it's arrogance. It's pride that refuses to submit. And we've got to be careful of that in the church. You know, that there are ways that things are supposed to work in the body of Christ. And submission, submission is part of it. You know, I've met people. I know people that they are a part of a church. They seem like very spiritual people. But when you talk to them, you can tell that there, there's not submission there. They, they don't really submit. And it's, it's a problem. It's a problem from it. There are some people I know that they, they can be in a church, but they can't be pastored. They won't allow themselves to be pastored because that, that requires submission. 
And I hope you hear my heart. This isn't like, a, you know, I'm, I'm looking for more leverage in, in your life or anything like that. But it's what the word of God says, that there's got to be, there's got to be submission. So if, it, if, it's, if it's not me, if it's not another person on staff, there needs to be somebody in your life that can bring correction. Who is able to shepherd you? Who is able to bring instruction? Are, are, is, is there someone in your life that can say something beyond good job? Man, you're great. Way to go. Praying for you. Sometimes that's all people want from a shepherd is just someone to pat their back and tell them how great they are, and they don't understand what they're missing out on by having a voice in their life that can bring correction and a perspective that might be difficult to hear every once in a while, but they need it. Who are you submitted to? Who, who is able to speak into your life? There's, there's got to be someone that you submit to, and I, I, for me as well, that applies. There's got to be people that I am in submission to. Verse six, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Submission isn't an attempt to hold people down. It's actually something that's gonna raise people up to help people rise to reach reach their potential. But here's that instruction again. The instruction is to humble yourself. So if pride is as dangerous and terrible and awful to the point where if someone has it, it says God detests them, then what in the world are we supposed to do? It tells us you are supposed to humble yourself. God puts the the obligation on you to humble yourself. So how does somebody biblically humble themselves? So you read through the Bible, the people in God's word, when God instructed them to humble themselves, the biblical response was always Fasting. Fasting is a tool, a biblical tool to bring humility. And I'll give, you, I'll give you some examples, and then we'll talk a little more about it. Psalm 35, verse 13 says, But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting, and my prayer would return uh, to my own heart. I humbled myself. So here he's talking about he hum- who humbled him. He humbled himself. I humbled myself. How did he do it? What mechanism? What method did he use? Just talking down to himself. I told myself I'm fat and ugly for three straight days. That's not not how he humbled himself. There was a way. He tells us specifically the way that I got myself from here to here in humility. I humbled myself with fasting. Fasting was the tool. Psalm 69, same thing. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting. How did you go about humbling yourself? By the discipline of fasting. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 29. The the verses that I'm going to read from Leviticus are the instruction that God gave the Israelites to establish the day of atonement. He's giving them instructions. It says this, verse 29, this shall be a permanent statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. For it is on this day, the day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you, to cleanse you, you will be clean from all of your sins before the Lord. Leviticus chapter 23, the same, same set of instructions. Gives them the day of atonement and says, on this day, this is a day for you to humble yourself. Now, as the Jews celebrated the Day of Atonement, like they still do, how did they respond? God's saying, what you guys need to do, you need to humble yourself. They understood that as a day of fasting. And Jewish people, even, even up until today, on the Day of Atonement, they humble themselves. How did they do it? They fast. So much so, that day of humbling yourself and fasting became so synonymous that people refer to the Day of Atonement as the fast. This is what they call it. It's like a nickname for the Day of Atonement. Even in Bible times, Acts chapter 27, 
verse 9. It says this, Now when much time had been spent, and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them. Most of you know the story. It's talking about weather getting bad and a shipwreck occurring, kind of a recounting. He said that it had gotten dangerous because the fast was over, that sailing had become difficult. When he says it was difficult because the fast was over, he's not talking about now these sailors are just eating food and nobody's at the controls. They're just all you know, making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches below deck. That's not what he's talking about. It was dangerous because the fast was over. He's using it as a, a calendar mark because now we're into September, October. Those things are in the past. That's when the Day of Atonement is. We're later in the year. The weather is changing. And so you, you can study that passage. When he says that the fast was over, he's specifically talking about the Day of Atonement, the day that they were supposed to humble themselves. How did they do it? By fasting. What one more proof from Ezra chapter eight. We haven't taken time in this, this year in fasting and prayer to talk about Ezra chapter eight, but it's my favorite story of, of Bible fasting. I would encourage you to take time to, to read through and study Ezra chapter eight. We'll just read one verse. It says, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. There I proclaimed a fast. Why? Ezra, why are you proclaiming a fast? That we might humble ourselves. So over and over, you see humbling ourselves is directly linked with fasting. Pride is an arrogance of self-reliance. You know, when you know what the word of God says, but you refuse to do it, that's that's pride. That's arrogance. So a lot of times when we're talking about the sin of pride, if we just judge ourselves by, I don't think I'm better than everybody else. I'm not the most arrogant person in the world. I'm not cocky. Well, that, that's not the only way that pride manifests in our lives. If you know what God's word has to say about sexual purity, but you say, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. That, that's pride that you think you know better than the Lord. When it comes to how you handle your finances, when it comes to, to being honest or being deceptive with people, if you know what God's word has to say, but you don't actually apply it to your life, it is, it's pride. And we've seen the, the dangerous place you find yourself if you allow pride in your lives. Fat, fasting is an admission. I don't know everything. Really, genuine fasting is an admission of inadequacy. When you genuinely confess, not, not with religious pretense, a genuine confession of inadequacy is humbling. One time I went out to dinner with, with a man and we went to a restaurant, we ate our meal and when, when the check came, I noticed he started kind of fumbling around for his wallet kind of making some motions like he's going he's gonna to grab the bill. But as he was doing that, I caught his eye. And I caught his eye. You never just, you just know. You know what's going on. I knew he didn't have the money to pay for it. I knew he wanted to, but he wasn't able. So he's kind of fumbling around. And it wasn't a big deal. I was planning on, on paying for the meal anyway. But I knew in that moment, oh, no, don't worry about it. I got it. If I would have made him say that he didn't have money. That would have been humiliating. That would have been humbling to admit the inadequacy in that moment. That there was something he wanted to do, he was inadequate to do it. That, that would have been a humiliation. Fasting is, fasting is an admission that I don't have what it takes. 
when we really fast, it's confessing, God, I am inadequate on my own. God, the strength that I need, the wisdom that I need, the guidance that I need, the comfort that I'm looking for, the strength, everything that I'm looking for, it's so far beyond what a fork or a spoon is able to deliver into my life. Father, what I need to be filled with is so much more, so much more significant than carbohydrates and protein and fat. What I need to be filled with is you. And until I'm filled with you, until I'm filled with your spirit, Lord, it's all just a waste. There's nothing I can do on my own. It's a confession. God, I'm so desperate for you. I'm so desperate for your ways. I'm so desperate for your voice in my life. I'll go to extraordinary measures to express my desperation. You ultimately are what I'm hungry for. Only you are able to satisfy, not just a meal, God, it's got to be you. It's got to be your presence. That's what fasting is an expression of. You guys can go ahead and come on up. And I, I want to take some time to pray this morning. You know, in, in the book of Isaiah, it says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. That, that's talking about righteousness, not just in a holiness stance, certainly that, but everything good you're able to produce. Everything righteous, everything good, that your decision-making, your financial management, your relationships, all of it, the best that you and I can muster up with our lives, the Bible describes it as filthy rags. And it's the only place I'm aware of in the Word of God where the translators were translating their original language and came upon a term that was so putrid and foul, they said, we can't put that in there. Let's just call it filthy rags. Because the meaning of the word in the Hebrew is rags of menstruation. The, the, the very best that you can muster in your life, in your own wisdom, in your own effort, is so foul that the translator said, we got to tone this down. Can we just settle on filthy rags? Because I, don't, I really don't want to put that in there. That's the best that you have to offer. To, to acknowledge I, I am inadequate on my own, that apart from the Lord, I can do nothing. It, it's a dependence on him. But the mistake that some people make is that they leave it right there. Apart from you, Lord, I can do nothing. And they have a defeatist mentality when it comes to their walk with the Lord. I'm just weak. I'm just a mess. God, I, I, there's nothing I can do. Apart from the Lord, I can do nothing. But through Christ, I can do all things through him who gives, who gives me strength. So there's a next step. That's just the beginning. That admission, Lord, I'm weak. I'm inadequate. There's nothing I can do on my own. That opens up the door for us to be able to receive his strength, his wisdom, when I stop relying on me and I fall entirely on him. Paul understood that. that. That's why he was able to say, when I am weak, when I am weak. What? He didn't just leave it right there. When I'm weak, I am. When I'm weak, I'm weak. I'm telling you. No, when I'm, when I'm weak, that, that's when I am strong. Because when I admit, God, I can't do it. I don't know how to do it. I don't know what I'm doing. Father, I need you. That's when I, that's when I become strong. So you and I don't have to live a defeated life. That's not what I'm talking about. Getting rid of pride doesn't mean I'm getting rid of confidence. It doesn't mean I'm getting rid of boldness. It doesn't get, mean I'm get, getting rid of a strength in my life. That God wants you to be strong. He wants you to be confident, but not confident confident in your flesh, confident in you, confident that the greater one is on the inside of you. And that's where your confidence is. That I'm confident, not in myself as a branch. I'm confident in the vine that I'm attached to that flows life through me. It's able to bear fruit. I'm confident, not in this jar of clay. I have a confidence in the treasure that's inside this jar of clay. And when we're, we're confident in him, it's faith. When I'm confident in me, it's arrogance and it's pride. And that, that's where God wants us, fully reliant on him. 
When we talk about being reliant on the Lord, it's not, well, I guess it's all in God's hands now and I'll just sit back and see what he does. That, that's false humility. Bible humility, genuine humility, doesn't produce negligence. Real humility produces obedience. And what produces genuine humility? Fasting and prayer. Genuine humility doesn't produce negligence. It produces obedience. And what produces genuine humility? Humble. I humbled myself with fasting. I humbled myself with fasting. God, I'll deny myself. All, all I really need is you. I want to read one more passage and then we'll, we'll pray. Psalm 37, verse 5. It says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. Or other translations say, and he will do it. I, I love praying like this. I use this kind of language in my, my prayer life all the time. Father, I, I, I commit this day to you. God, I commit this year to you. Lord, we, we pray this way before services. Father, we commit this service into your hands. We commit it to you. Lord, commit this week into your hands. But when we pray like that, that kind of language, it's not like a, I'm committing, like I'm dedicating it to the Lord. Like I'm about to sing a special number or ask uh, the radio to play a song and I'm dedicating it to the Lord. So when I, when I dedicate, when I commit something to the hands of God, it's not, God, I commit this day to you. Watch what I do with today. Just know this goes out to you, Lord. That, that's not the kind of language, right? It, it literally means to roll it on to the Lord to roll it onto the Lord. Listen to it in the Young's literal translation. Roll on Jehovah thy way. God, here's what you're calling me to. I know it's what. You know, it doesn't have to be something extraordinarily impressive for it to be too much for you to handle. It's not, Lord, you've called me to save the entire world, but it's, Lord, you called me to be a faithful spouse. Lord, I need your help. God, you called me to be a person of integrity and honesty. I roll that on to you. I need your strength so much, God. I'm incapable of anything on my own. I need you so bad. I'm relying on you. It's your spirit on the inside of me producing fruit that I can't produce on my own. It says to roll it on to Jehovah, to roll it on to him. Instead of the weight of that marriage, instead of the weight of that career, instead of the burden of that calling resting on your shoulders, I roll it, I roll it on to him. I roll it on to him. It says trust also in him. Young's literal, roll on Jehovah thy way and trust upon him. It's not just trusting in him. Like, yep, I believe there's a God out there somewhere. No, I'm, I'm, I'm trusting. I'm, my weight is on him. I'm leaning on him. I fully trust in him. My reliance is on him and not on myself. And what's it say next? And he worketh, and he worketh. Roll on Jehovah thy way, trust upon him, and he worketh. So it's translated, and he'll bring it to pass, and he will do it. Literally in the Hebrew, it's, and he worketh. So what gets God to work in a person's life? What, what triggers God to begin to move into action? It's not a person who's self-reliant. It's not a person who says, God, I'm going to try this on my own, and if you could like spot me on this. It's the person that rolls it on the Lord. Their trust is on him, and that, that's where God steps into the situation. So I want to take time this morning just to, to Whatever it is you need to roll onto the Lord this year, whatever's stressing, stressing you, whatever's causing, causing worry, concern, just to roll that onto the Lord and, and do what's necessary to trigger him to begin to work in that situation, to trust in the Lord, to commit your way to the Lord. That, that, that's what God's looking for.
You know, in the story of the fish and the loaves, when Jesus has got multitudes of people, thousands and thousands of people, and he wanted to feed them, he told his disciples, hey, feed these people. Do you remember their response? Lord, I, you got thousands. I got, I got a few loaves and a few fish. Lord, what, what we have, it would take so much more. You remember what Jesus said? When they were almost ashamed in their inadequacy, Lord, what good is this going to do among such a, such a need? Bring it here. Let me see it. Let me see it. What, what just... Bring it here. And instead of saying, no, I'm, I'm too ashamed, I, to humble ourselves, Lord, put it in your hand. Let this be a morning where you, you turn some inadequate things over to the Lord. We say, Lord, Lord just, Jesus is saying, let me see, let me see. Just to put it into his hands. As we finish this fast today, let's take some time to pray together as a church family. And we're still in the fast. This is the 21st day. It's not, it's not over yet. We're still in this fast. Make sure that you know what it is that you're believing for, what you want to come out. You know, in Bible examples, that they knew what they were fasting for. Not just a, a general, uh, I don't know, we're just not supposed to eat any food. I, I don't know. Esther fasted because she knew there was something that she needed. She needed a favor to come on her life that when she went before the king, instead of getting her head cut off, he would motion for her to come closer. Lord, I need favor on my life. I'm in trouble without your favor. She knew why she was fasting. Ezra that we just read about, he wasn't just fasting like, hey, before this trip, man, let's try to shed a few pounds. He declared a fast because he needed God to intervene so that he'd be able to get to his destination. You might, need, you might need the favor of God for success, for the ability to advance in the way God wants you to advance. Know what it is that you're believing for coming out of this fast. Jehoshaphat needed direction. He said, God, I don't know what to do. I've got this situation. I need wisdom. Show me the steps to take. So he declared a fast. Why are you fasting? Before the end of the day, write something down in your note, but God, I need favor. I need wisdom. I need success. I need advancement. I need instruction. What is it that you're believing for to come out of this fast? Let's turn it over to the Lord. Roll, roll it onto the Lord. Go ahead and stand to your feet. You know, rolling things onto the Lord is directly related with humility. It's a pride that keeps, keeps it on your own life and on your own shoulders. That's why if we would have kept reading in 1 Peter chapter 5, where it says to humble yourself, God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves, God will exalt you in due time. The next couple of verses say this, casting all of your cares upon him because he cares for you. It's directly rated. It's, it's a humility that casts cares on the Lord. And notice in fasting, we start Isaiah chapter 58. It lifts off burdens, things that keep people down, things that tangle people up, things that prevent people from promotion and advancement. Fasting removes those things. It's the same thing. Fasting, we humble ourselves and God exalts. We remove pride from our life, which causes destruction and a fall and position ourselves for a lifting by the hand, by the hand of God. So I wanna take some time to pray this morning. Lord, we've humbled ourselves before you. Lord, I've humbled myself before you. I need you. I need you. I receive that wisdom. I receive that favor. Father, I've started this year humbling myself so I can commit it into your hand. Well, that's this week's message. Thanks for joining us. To stay connected with us throughout the week, 
make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook. You can also watch previous week's services on our YouTube page.